earlier this week, I got a notification on my phone. Probably get similar notifications where it says, on this date, you know, this many years ago, and then it will show you pictures of what was happening on that on that date. And uh, we had a one of those come up, and I had completely forgotten uh, what my kids had looked like three years ago. It's like, wow, that's that's what they looked like. That is that is true. Uh, and it is amazing how we forget about those kinds of things. We get used to, to seeing our kids uh, day in and day out, and we get used to how they look right here and right now. Uh, and unless we are intentionally thinking back to uh, or looking at pictures of what they look like, you know, three, five, ten, twenty-five years ago, we we tend to forget. Uh, the same is true. I've seen those uh, same memory notifications pop up uh, about trips or, or special events or just a typical uh, gathering where we, where we took some pictures out playing in the backyard. It's amazing how many things we forget, right? There, there are so many things that we, we need to be reminded about. And unless we are intentionally bringing them to mind, we, we will just naturally forget. Now, we need to be reminded, we need to be uh, told that we need to remember certain things. And it's helpful to, to outline what those things are. If you're going to go to the store, uh, you write a, a list uh, and, and you refer back to that list. You look at what you are told to remember to get at the store. Many a husband has come home from the store uh, and uh, had to explain to his wife, why did you not get this? Didn't you look at the list? Well, maybe, right? We need to not only be told what to remember, but we actually need to go about remembering what we have been told. We have to look at the list. We have to reflect uh, upon it. As we as we studied last week in John chapter 14 verses 25 and 26, we, we we studied the role of the Holy Spirit as a teacher, and we saw that he was uh, particularly as he teaches, he is a remembrancer. That he is one who who brings to mind, uh, he brings to remembrance uh, what Jesus has taught, what he has instructed, and when we when we come to our passage this morning this morning and we close out. Uh, John chapter 14, as we look at verses 27 to 31, we're going to see Jesus g- giving his disciples a list of what they are to remember. Uh, but, but, but this is kind of the, the winding down of uh, a scene within the, the upper room discourse. Remember I've said that the upper room discourse is Jesus' final message, his final instructions to the disciples. And it goes from John chapter 13 through the end of John 16. And then there's a, a culminating prayer in which everything that Jesus taught his disciples in, that, in those chapters, he then prays for the Lord to fulfill. And uh, at the end of this chapter, really at the end of verse 31... Uh, we see something that, that's very interesting that we have, to, we have to piece together and harmonize with another portion of Scripture. At the end of verse 31, you see Jesus says, Get up, let us go from here. And how do we make sense of that along with John chapter 18, verse 1? It says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples to the other side of the Kidron Valley. Uh, where there was a garden into which he entered with his disciples. And so there, there's, these, there's these two mentions of Jesus getting up and, and departing with his disciples. And how do we make sense of that? 
And there's a couple of different ways. The first option would be uh, that uh, Jesus is telling his disciples that they are, uh, it, it's time to get ready to go. Uh, and you guys know when people come over to your house and you say, okay, it's time to get ready to go. Uh, and then you just slowly move towards the door. And then like 20 minutes later, you're still talking there at the front door. Some have said that that's kind of what is taking place, that Jesus has announcing that they're, they need to be on their way and they haven't actually left yet until uh, John chapter 18. That, that's one option. I think a, a better option is to understand that in, uh, at the end of chapter 14 here, they do actually get up and go. Uh, and then they are walking uh, on their way. And then the, the contents of John's chapter 15 and 16 are spoken uh, on the way, uh, potentially to the temple. Uh, and maybe John chapter 17 is spoken. The high priestly prayer is potentially spoken at the temple. Uh, and then from there, they go up in John chapter 18 from the temple out of Jerusalem and into uh, the Garden of Gethsemane. And so that is a, a more likely option that I would uh, prefer. Uh, and so what I, what I think we have here is Jesus kind of winding down the conversation in the upper room. Uh, and as he does that, he's going to, to give his disciples a list of, of what they are to uh, remember. And by way of repetition, he's going to instruct them uh, concerning what they need to continually keep in mind. And if you look at uh, the beginning of our portion this morning, in verse 27... Jesus says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. You heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it happens, so that when it happens, you may believe. And I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of the world is coming, and he has nothing in me. But so the world, so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Get up, let us go from here. So Jesus is going to, to give his disciples this list, this, these reminders of what they should remember. But this is not just a, a list uh, for the disciples in the first century. This is a, a list for us as well. These are things that we are called to remember. Uh, we, we need to be reminded about them. We need to actively bring them to mind uh, and hold them fast to our hearts. But we can say, what does Jesus want his disciples and us to remember in this passage? And I would say that there's a, a list of four items. Now, this is not an exhaustive list, but this is what he gives them here. Uh, a list of uh, four uh, remembrances. Uh, but before we, we dive into these four remembrances, I want to pause and I want to pray and ask for the Lord to, to strengthen and empower us as we study his word. Heavenly Father, you are holy. I pray that this morning that you would be treated as holy in our hearts, in our minds, as we study your word, as I proclaim your truth to your people. Pray that you would, would guide me, that you would guide our understanding, and ultimately that, that you would be glorified, even as you have sent your Son into the world to live and die and rise again in order to glorify you, the same way that he did your will, may we do your will now, comprehending 
all that you are, all that you have revealed to us in your word, that we might be shaped and conformed, that we might become like the one whom you sent, your son. It is in his matchless and holy name that we pray and ask for your blessing upon our study of your word this morning. As we look at these four uh, items of remembrance, the first one that you see there on your outline is is given to us in in verse 27. Uh, And this may be the most important one. Jesus is going to to say that they need to remember uh, the the peace that he gives to them. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Jesus begins by by telling them what he's going to leave with them. And this is uh, kind of a a common way of uh, saying goodbye or to greet somebody uh, in the ancient Middle East. Uh, If you turn over to John chapter 20, uh, the resurrected Christ is going to uh, give this greeting uh, on three separate times in John chapter 20, verses 19 to 26. If you look at the end of verse 19 in chapter 20, and Jesus said to them, peace be with you. Uh, And then in verse 21, so Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. Then 26 at the end, he says again, peace be with you. This was a this was a common greeting. And so it's not unusual to say that Jesus is going to depart and leave peace with them. That's the the idea of the greeting. But what is more significant is the next statement that Jesus makes. He says, my peace I give to you. What, what is that saying? What, is, what kind of peace does Jesus have to give to the disciples? I love what James Montgomery Boyce says. He says this. He says, it is the personal peace that Jesus had himself enjoyed while here on the earth. And two things are characteristic of it. First, uh, it is a peace based upon one's intimate knowledge of God, a God who is in control of all things. And second, this peace is entirely independent of circumstances. That's the kind of peace uh, that Jesus gives to his disciples and to all who look and trust in him. There's a a story about a a contest in which artists were uh, told to submit paintings and sculptures to portray their concept and their idea of what peace looks like. And there were many pictures of sunsets or uh, green pastures and, and fields. Uh, but the, the winner of that contest uh, was actually a, a picture of a waterfall streaming down. Uh, and coming out from that waterfall was a, a tree branch. And on that tree branch uh, is a bird in its nest. See, that portrays a very different kind of peace. Because that, that waterfall is there raging. And in the middle of that tumult, that bird... Uh, in the middle of all of the, the noise and loudness and, and craziness, that bird has peace. See, that's a different kind of peace. It's easy to be at peace inwardly when there is peace around you. What's more difficult uh, is when uh, there is chaos around you and you can still be at peace. Uh, and that's the kind of peace that Jesus gives to those who trust in him. A a supernatural and exceptional peace beyond what we can achieve and accomplish in and of ourselves. And and Jesus makes that clarification right after that. He says, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. 
This is not the world's peace that Jesus is offering. It is infinitely greater and better. And the world often will falsely promise peace. But the world cannot guarantee peace. It delivers and claims that it can, but it is absolutely unable to. Jeremiah chapter 6, verses 13 and 14. For from the least of them, even to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for gain. And from the prophet, even to the priest, everyone practices lying. They have healed the brokenness of my people, superficially saying, peace, peace. But there is no peace. We talked about the peace that Jesus offers is a supernatural peace. But there's also some, some additional clarifications and, and details within that. There's two aspects of the peace, and, and one is really emphasized in a Greek understanding of peace. The, the Greek word here is where we get uh, our name Irene. Uh, Irene name means uh, peace. But in the Greek understanding of peace, it really just refers to an absence of conflict. When, when there is not war, by definition, there is peace. But that's not the Hebrew idea of peace. There is more to peace than just merely the absence of conflict. Uh, The Hebrew word for peace is shalom. Uh, And that is not just the absence of conflict, but it's the presence of positive blessings. And and that is what Jesus has in mind, both together. Yes, there's an absence of conflict, but there's also the presence of blessings. Uh, And the world uh, will promise those things, uh, but they, they are unable to deliver. Absolutely unable to. And uh, you just look at what happened this week with the shooting in Nashville. An individual who, who's burdened, who's been told uh, that the solutions to life's problems are if you uh, do certain things. The world says if you change your body and if you think of yourself in these ways, that will, that will lead to peace. But that person found out what? It didn't lead to peace. And then they acted out because they didn't feel peace. They were going to bring conflict to others. The world's solutions won't actually bring peace. And if they, they may lead to an absence of conflict. You can run away from conflict and have the absence of conflict, right? And that's often what the world says to do. But in doing that, in running away, you also miss out on the blessings. You're never going to experience both kinds of peace, the absence of conflict and the presence of blessings, apart from Christ. Because it is his peace that he gives. He must bestow that. And he does give it to everyone who looks to him in faith. And it is freely given. Everyone who trusts in him receives that kind of peace. So you don't have to be discouraged. You, can't, you don't have to think and be uh, within your own mind of beginning to, to think, well, I can't ever have that kind of peace in my life. I can't have an absence of conflict because all of these other people are picking conflicts with me. No. Again, you can be that bird on the edge of the waterfall. You can have peace in the middle of a tumult because that's the kind of peace that Christ gives. This is the peace that he offers. Later on in this discourse, if you turn over to the end of chapter 16, verse 33, he says, These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. So what does Jesus promise right there? 
you will have tribulation, but you will also have peace. And, and that it's possible to have both. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, uh, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's the absence of conflict with God because we trust in Jesus. Uh, if, we, if we don't trust in Jesus, our sin separates us from a holy God. There is enmity, there is conflict between us and God because of our sin. But if we look to Jesus in faith, that conflict is resolved. It, our sin is paid for in full and forgiven because of what Christ accomplished on the cross. Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7. We are commanded to be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That is a supernatural peace that is offered to us. You may say, well, well then, if I have this peace, what am I to do? Well, Jesus, Jesus hammers home the application at the end of this verse. How does Jesus want us to respond? How does he want the disciples to respond in light of what he's saying? If he says, I give you my peace, then what should we do? What does he say? He says, do not let your heart be troubled. And that is exactly what he said at the beginning of this chapter. How does chapter 14, verse 1 begin? Do not let your heart be troubled. Do we need to be reminded yeah, he needs to say the same things to his disciples within a very short period of time. And we need that same reminding as well. Do not allow your heart to be troubled. And then there's a second command, just like it. Nor let it be fearful. Don't let your heart be cowardly. Trust in Christ. I love the way one pastor put this. He says, Set your troubled hearts at rest and banish your fears. Now that is what Christ is commanding here. And we are able to do that, even though it seem, may seem impossible. But we are able to do that because who is it that gives us the peace? Christ. And what has he also promised in, in previously in this chapter? He said, who is he going to send? The spirit of truth, the advocate, the helper to dwell in us. To empower us, to strengthen us, to teach us and guide us. We are able to experience this kind of peace by looking to Jesus in faith. Do you believe that? Are you willing to obey the commands and experience what Jesus is describing here? If you are a believer, you are called then to live according to that peace. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 15, Paul says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you were called in one body, and be thankful. So there he is reminding again of what Tim was talking about for communion. We are one body. And how are we to interact with one another? We're to let the peace of Christ rule over us. The idea is that the peace of Christ is the umpire between us. Uh, that when there is conflict, uh, we have the peace of Christ, the Word of God, there to, to give instructions and provide directions. Uh, and we are to submit to that. And the outcome of that is the absence of conflict and the presence of blessings. And, and there's a, a very big difference between those two. Right? When, when there's conflict in our homes, sometimes uh, we can have the absence of conflict just because we're not talking to one another. Right? right? But is that really peace? Talk to me. You guys know that. That's like, that's worse. 
right? To, to have conflict in the home and for it to be unaddressed, there's no peace there. That's a, a, a boiling pot with the lid on, just waiting to blow up. What happens when you open up that lid? All the steam comes and it fogs up your glasses. But a very different picture of a home is when not only is there the absence of conflict, but there is the presence of blessings. That's very, very different. And that only comes when the peace of Christ is ruling in your hearts and you are submitting all of your relationships within that household, within the church, uh, to the word of Christ. And that is a beautiful and an amazing thing. And Jesus is holding that up to his disciples and to us and saying, this is what you can experience. And this is what you need to remember. But we forget. Sometimes we just say, well, conflict is just a part of life. Yes, it is. But again, we can be that bird on the nest on the edge of the waterfall. In the middle of conflict, we can still have peace because we know we are submitting our lives to Christ. That is the first reminder that he gives to his disciples the second uh, is seen in verse 28 he reminds them of the love that they misplaced Jesus says you heard that i said to you i go away and i will come to you and if you love me or if you loved me you would have rejoiced because i go to the father for the father is greater than i so at the beginning of this verse, he's pointing back and he's reminding his disciples about things that he had previously said to them in chapter 14, verse 3, where he says that if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Then also in chapter 18, or I'm sorry, chapter 14, verse 18, he says, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. So those the, the references of Jesus is going to be uh, going, but then he's going to come again to them. He says, you've already heard that, but now he's going to do a little bit of a, a gut punch to them. He's going to tell them how they should have responded. And he's going to explain uh, or imply why they didn't respond the way that they should have an important connection here and these are the times where jesus just kind of pulls back the layers of the human heart he says if you had really loved me they would have rejoiced when he said that he was going to the father but they didn't rejoice when jesus says he's going to the father he's going to the best place the apostle paul says something similar uh, in philippians chapter 1 he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know what I will choose. But I am hard pressed between the two, having the desire to depart, to be with Christ, for that is very much better. Apostle Paul is saying, I don't know if I'd rather stay here in prison and get to continue my ministry or if it's, I'd rather just go and be with Jesus. He says it's far better to go be with Christ in heaven. And since Jesus was saying that he was going to go and be with the Father in heaven, that is what is best. And if the disciples truly loved him in that moment, they would have rejoiced. This is what Jesus is saying. But instead they, they grieved and they worried. And really their, their lack of rejoicing shows their self-centeredness. They weren't excited 
with Jesus, they were concerned about themselves. Ultimately, they had a lack of love for Jesus. D.A. Carson puts it this way, If Jesus' disciples truly loved him, they would be glad that he is returning to his Father, for he is returning to the sphere where he belongs, to the glory that he had with the Father before the world began, to the place where the Father is undiminished in glory, unquestionably greater than the Son in his incarnate state. But this, this is worth a, a question and some, some thought. Why is it that the disciples did not love and rejoice as they should have? Was it just like their, their love tanks were running on empty? That they didn't have enough affections in their heart to love Jesus as they should? No. That, that wasn't the issue. There was plenty of love in their hearts, but their, their love was not directed to the proper object. See, they were loving not Jesus, but themselves. Right? They had love and affection, but not for Him. The two greatest commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second, which is like it, is love your neighbor as yourself. And, and implied within that second greatest commandment is that what do we do naturally? You love yourself. You do that. No one had to, uh, to tell you how to do that. That was your default setting. You came out of the womb uh, and you were crying because you wanted something. You weren't like, Mom, you've had such a traumatic experience and how can I minister to you right now? Right? That is not, uh, that is not uh, how you come out of the womb. Right? You're like, I want what I want, when I want it, how I want it. That, that's our default setting. And, and that's where the disciples are here. And Jesus is, is saying, you weren't really loving me in that moment. Which is, I think, really hard for them to hear. Right? That, that, would, that would have been a gut punch. Another important statement in that verse, really at the end of the verse. And it's important because it has, it has been twisted That final statement in in verse 28, where Jesus is explaining why he's going to the Father and and why it is good for him to go to the Father, he makes that little statement, for the Father is greater than I. That that statement is important that we rightly understand it because uh, there's an ancient uh, heresy uh, by the Arians in which they said that Jesus is a created being. He is not equal to the Father. Uh, and uh, that this is the proof, right? He says that the, the Father is greater than I. And modern-day Jehovah's Witnesses uh, take up that same uh, theology, uh, saying that Jesus is a created being and not equal to the Father. And how, how do we deal with that? So very clearly and obviously, the whole purpose of the Gospel of John is to, uh, and the message of Jesus himself throughout this Gospel, uh, is that he is equal to the Father, if you turn to the very beginning, how does this gospel begin? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And He was in the beginning with God. In verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory is the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Later on in over the course of the gospel, the Jews are going to the Jewish leaders are going to understand exactly what Jesus is claiming to be. 
John chapter 5, he says that he, is, uh, he and the Father are, are one. And they, they said, we're going we're gonna to stone you because you're making God out to be your Father. So they understood exactly what Jesus was claiming. Later on in John chapter 10, if you look at verse 30, Jesus makes it very, very plain. He says, I and the Father are one. That there is complete equality between the Father and the Son. So then how do we understand uh, this statement of Jesus back in John chapter 14? I would say that in this uh, moment in time, and kind of alluding to that quote from D.A. Carson that I read, during the incarnation, uh, Christ set aside the glory that belonged to him. Uh, In John chapter 17, verse 5, uh, Jesus is going to, to pray to the Father. He says, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. And Philippians 2 is going to say something similar, alluding to the equality that the Son had with the Father. But uh, it was kind of a subtraction by addition uh, during the incarnation when Jesus comes to the earth. Philippians 2, speaking of Jesus, who, although existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave and being made in the likeness of men. The only in the incarnation uh, was uh, the Son uh, lesser than the Father in any sense, but that's only because He's in a human form and His glory is veiled. But ultimately, in this verse, what we see is that in the future, when the disciples look back on this, they, they are supposed to remember their lack of love, the fact that they did not love Jesus as they should have in that moment. You and I are often like these disciples. You and I are often more focused upon our own griefs, our own sorrows. You and I are often more focused upon our love for ourselves and what we want to pursue rather than thinking about what would glorify Jesus, what would be pleasing to Him. We're more consumed with the things of this world rather than loving and rejoicing in Christ. And again, I think, I think that would have hit the disciples hard. But, but it's the, the hardest lessons that stick to us the best, right? Uh, the, the, the burned hand teaches best uh, is a, a proverb that I often cite. Uh, of the, the, the lessons that, that hurt you the most are the ones that sink in the deepest. I think this is one of those lessons for the disciples. But there's a third item that Jesus wants the disciples to remember, and us as well. Verse 29, namely the, the predictions which Jesus made. It says, And now I have told you before it happens, so that when it happens, you may believe. So Jesus is, is explaining uh, why he is explaining all of these things. Uh, this is something, this is one of those things that they are to remember in the future, and they will look back and it will make more and more sense to them. And this is the whole theme of this chapter, the whole theme of the Upper Room Discourse, of bringing to remembrance and repetition of what they need to keep in mind for the future. And the emphasis here is what would be the outcome of their future remembering, namely that they would believe. And when he's saying that, he's not saying that they will believe for the first time, but that their belief, that their faith in him would be uh, encouraged and uh, it would grow bigger uh, because they see and have a greater understanding of what he said and what he has uh, said is coming to pass. 
Uh, He said something similar uh, back in chapter 13, verse 19, after he announced that Judas was going to uh, betray him. It's from now on I am telling you before it occurs so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. Jesus is is front-loading things so that they can see that he knows all things, that he's in control of all things, and what he has said is going to come to pass. And that is an encouragement and a blessing uh, to the disciples and to us. It's kind of like uh, if you have, uh, if we all had bingo cards of, of the prophecies and promises of Jesus. We start to, you know, clipping away. Like, well, this one's been fulfilled, and this one's been fulfilled, and this one's been fulfilled. We start to see a pattern, right? And then when we begin to question, well, are these future ones going to be fulfilled? The answer is yes, because we see all of the previous ones that have been uh, shown to be true. Uh, And I would say we have even more reason to be encouraged and to trust in Christ because uh, we have an additional 2,000 years of redemptive history in which to see Jesus laying out and fulfilling all of his promises to the church. Uh, where, where those first century disciples didn't have that long, long history. We do. And we can see uh, Christ's promises being fulfilled. We can see the church living faithfully. We can see the saints living under the peace of Christ. We see that in our own lives and lives of those around us here in our own church and throughout church history. We are called to remember uh, that what Jesus has taught and to be encouraged by his fulfillment of his promises in the past. And that gives us assurance here in the present and in the future. We're called to remember the peace Jesus gives, the love the disciples misplaced, and the predictions that Jesus made. And then lastly, verses 30 and 31, we, we are to remember the love Christ proves. And in these verses, Jesus is kind of speeding the conversation along. He says, I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. And it's interesting because what's going on in the background here, Jesus and the disciples are in the upper room of John Mark's house. And remember, Judas left them. And what is Judas doing at this very moment? Yeah, he's betraying. He's going to the, the, the high priests uh, and getting paid and telling them where Jesus is. So I think that's part of the reason Jesus is saying it's time for us to get up and go. Because if you're Judas, where are you going to lead the, the, the soldiers first to arrest Jesus? Right to that very room. So Jesus is saying, let us get up and go. And he says, the ruler of the world is coming. So it's interesting. Jesus makes no mention of Judas and makes no mention of the soldiers. Jesus is looking at the power behind them. Who is it that came and indwelt Judas in this whole process? Satan. And and Jesus is saying, the ruler of this world is coming. And that's a significant statement. Looking at the the true power behind these events. A lot more here, but really fallen humanity is not autonomous. Everybody who does not look to Jesus in faith is a part of that unbelieving world. And they are within the, the sphere, the influence, and the domain of the evil one. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. And you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among whom... We all also formerly conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, doing the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. 
ruler of the world is exercising his power and influence upon the world. This world uh, is under that power and influence, but the cross, what's going to happen the very next day from what we are studying, the cross is where the ruler of this world, his defeat is made certain. He's going to be around for a little bit longer. He's still, as First Peter says, he's still wandering about seeking whom he may devour as a wandering lion. But I love what Martin Luther writes in his famous hymn. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. Colossians 2.15, speaking about the cross, says that it was at the cross that Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities, and he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them in, really, the cross. Hebrews 2, verses 14 and 15, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who, through fear of death, were subject to slavery all their lives. So so Jesus emphasizes there is a, a spiritual power who is coming and on his way right now. But but then Jesus gives an assurance in that next little statement. It's kind of like a little bit of trash talk, right? We played basketball last week. We didn't talk too much trash. It's Christian church basketball. But but Jesus is doing a little bit of trash talking here. He says, the ruler of this world is coming and he has nothing on me. He's got nothing. Sin gives Satan a hold on. On us as individuals, right? Satan is the one with with the power of death, and death comes in via sin. First John three verse eight: the one who does sin is of the devil, because the devil sins from the beginning. The Son of God was manifested for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus, in his sinless perfection, Satan has no hold on him. So there is, there is an assurance of victory here. The ruler of the world is coming, but he's not going to be able to overcome Jesus. And Jesus wants the disciples to be absolutely sure about this. right? Because again, it's, going to, it's, a, it's a scary and sobering moment when Jesus is going to be arrested in chapter 18. When he's going to be taken away. Not only is he going to be arrested, he's not going to be released. He's going to be executed in the most gruesome and shameful way. And in that moment, Friday, even though it's Good Friday, it's going to look like complete and utter defeat. And Jesus wants his disciples to know it is not defeat. And he explains, the ruler of this world is coming. He's got nothing on me, but I'm going. I'm going to experience what I'm going to experience so that, what does it say in verse 31? So that the world may know that I love the Father. I do exactly as the Father commanded me. We don't often think about this demonstration of Jesus' love. If, if we were to explain the love of Jesus, how do we typically frame it? That Jesus went to the cross because he loved us. But that's not what Jesus says here. 
He says he went to the cross because of his love for God the Father. And his love for God the Father, much as he loves us, he loves God the Father more. Now, does that take away from what Jesus accomplished and did on our behalf? Absolutely not. It actually gives us a greater hope and a greater encouragement. And I'll I'll put it this way. What, What is the best way a human father can love his children? Sometimes we think, well, just just pouring and showering love upon them. I would actually say the best way a human father can love his children is by loving their mother. Because then the children are safe and secure because there's a, a covenant relationship between the mother and the father and the children understand that and they rest under that protection. But when a father doesn't love the mother or breaks that covenant how do the children feel and they feel uncertain those natural questions if, if my father was unwilling to keep the most sacred promise how do i know that he's going to continue to to love and care for me raises all of those questions now, the greatest way for a parent to love their children is to love their spouse And in that same way, the greatest way for us as Christians to be loved is to see and rest underneath that inner Trinitarian love that we see. I know that's going really deep into theology, but that's really what we're seeing here in John 13 through 16. The relationship between the Father, Son, and Spirit and how that is a covering and a protection for everybody who looks to Jesus in faith. And we know that Jesus is going to love and care for us because he loves and cares for us. For the Father. And whatever the Father has commanded him to do, he's going to do. And that's the emphasis at the end of that verse. We are called to rest in that comfort and that security. So here in this passage, we have a a tremendous list to remember. We are to remember the peace that Jesus gives. The love that they misplaced. The predictions Jesus made. And ultimately the love that Christ proves. We are to, to keep these things in mind, to rest in them. One uh, old pastor, Harry Ironside, used, uh, he, he told this story that at the, the close of the Civil War, there was a, a troop of, of Union cavalry riding uh, along a road between uh, Richmond, Virginia and Washington, D.C. Uh, and suddenly they, they see this, this Confederate soldier who's just in like tattered clothes and he looks ragged. And he comes out of the bush and he calls to the captain of the cavalry unit and he cries out for help. He says, can you help me? He says, I'm starving to death. Can you give me some food? And the captain says, starving to death? Like, just go over to, go over to Richmond, Virginia and, and get food. Like, why are you out here starving? And the soldier explained, I dare not go to Richmond. I can't go. That was the, the, the capital of the, the Confederacy. Says, because if I did, I would be arrested. He says, three weeks ago, I became so discouraged because of our losses that I deserted from the Southern Army and I've been hiding in the woods ever since, gradually making my way north, hoping for a chance to break through the Union lines. And if I should be caught by Southern soldiers, I would be shot for deserting the Army in time of war. And the captain says, well, haven't you heard the news? 
What news? It says that the war is over. Peace has been made. General Lee surrendered to General Grant at Appomattox two weeks ago. The Confederacy is ended. And the soldier says, what? Peace has been made for two weeks and I have been starving in the woods because I didn't know it. That's, that's what we need to, to comprehend. That peace is out there. Jesus says, I leave you with peace and I give you my peace. Do we believe that? Are we willing to act upon it? If we have been anxious and in turmoil for a period of time, we are exactly like this soldier. Peace has been accomplished. It has been brokered. Are we going to rest in it and live accordingly? Are we going to continue to live as we have been living? If you're here this morning and, and you haven't looked to Jesus in faith, I would urge you to do so. Look to him, call upon him. You can experience the kind of peace that he's offering, that he's reminding the disciples about. You forsake all of your hope in yourself. Don't trust in your own efforts. Don't trust in your own wisdom. Look to Jesus in faith as your only hope, the only source of peace between you and God. I love that final line that we sang a couple times of Rock of Ages, right? Be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me poor. Pure, not poor, but also. But we could add in there. Save from wrath and give me 